Well, good afternoon, everyone. To those of you here, to those of you at home, we're excited to be starting a new series today in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, back in 2016, as Jai said, we worked our way through Matthew until the end of chapter 10. And today we're beginning where we left off in chapter 11. I think it's a little bit tricky for us to pick up a series when we're kind of halfway through uh, a book. So what I want to do today is to reintroduce us to Matthew so that we can be helped to get our bearings uh, again. And, uh, and then ne- next week we'll think about the, the, the handful of verses at the end of Matthew chapter 11 that are very famous invitation of Jesus and we'll, we'll look at that more into next week. Um, what I'd like to do is three simple things. We're going to think a little bit about the author of this gospel, Matthew himself. And then we're going to stand back and just see a little brief overview and get a sense of the structure of this gospel as a whole. And then we'll, uh, last of all, do a little bit of background context to ease us back into chapter 11. So authorship, overview, and then a little bit of context. The most important thing, though, that I want to do is in each of these three things that we're going to look at, I want us to see what we can learn about Jesus. We've entitled this series, Jesus the King. What can we learn from these three uh, ways of looking at Matthew that, that will help us to learn something about Jesus the King? So first of all, um, let's think about Jesus the King who compels decisive obedience I've grown to love this gospel uh, as we've studied it together uh, both when we started this and, and, and even in these last few weeks not least because Matthew who wrote this gospel is seems to be a larger than life character who loved and followed Jesus with passionate devotion He would have been despised by his fellow Jews because of his lucrative career as a tax collector for the Romans. They would have considered him a traitor. But Matthew left all of that behind in a nanosecond when he met Jesus. Despite his wealthy and dodgy past, Matthew discovered that Jesus, the king, understood him, loved him, and wanted him. And there was clearly something about Jesus, the king, that inspired Matthew to instant obedience and a life of decisive discipleship. You can read about his encounter with Jesus in chapter 9 of Matthew. You can read about it in other Gospels. And when Jesus said to Matthew these simple words, follow me, you can sum up the whole invitation of the good news of the gospel, can't you, with those two words. Jesus comes to Matthew and says to him, follow me. And he didn't hesitate or delay or linger or dither. He left behind the the disgrace and shame of his past and went all in to follow Jesus, the King. One thing you and I can learn, I think, from the author of this gospel then 
is how to properly nail our colours to the mast, isn't it? Jesus the, Jesus the King calls all of you, all of us, with those words, follow me. Those of you who are younger here today, I want to say to you, do it now. Don't wait until you're older. You don't need to wait until you've figured everything out. You don't need to put it off because you think you might miss out on something else because of him. Do it. Now, I started following Jesus 44 years ago when I was seven years old. And I've never regretted it for a single moment. Do it now while you're young. And those of you who are older, do it now. Don't let the busyness and demands of ordinary life make you put off Jesus till some later convenient time. It might never come. Don't let the fact that you should have done it earlier put you off from doing it now. If you've hesitated, it isn't too late to respond today. Do it now. So the first thing we learn about Jesus the King from Matthew himself is that Jesus is the King who compels and inspires decisive, wholehearted, joyful obedience. Secondly, turning to Matthew as a whole. My point here in the middle section of the book, and we'll see this, I hope, over these next few weeks between now and Easter. Jesus is the king who overcomes rising opposition. Let me show you how I draw that conclusion from the, the structure of Matthew. I think sometimes we might miss this if we were reading the details and we didn't just stand back a little and think about the, the whole thing. When you think about it, if Matthew was a tax collector, he must have been an intelligent and articulate man who will have been used to keeping records and dealing with details. So this gospel isn't a gospel that's been randomly thrown together. What Matthew has given us here in his gospel account is a literary masterpiece that is a lovingly drawn portrait of Jesus the King. I don't want to bombard you with lots of detail here, but I do want you to see that there is a structure to this gospel. Most commentators recognise that Matthew has very carefully and very deliberately built his gospel around five separate blocks of teaching of Jesus. Five separate extended blocks of teaching in Matthew. So let me try and show you, show you the structure like this. First of all, there's an introduction that speaks of Jesus as the promised king. And there's a conclusion at the end that reveals him to be the victorious king. In chapters 1 and 2, Matthew emphasises that the birth of Jesus was promised over and over again down the previous centuries 
and that Jesus, the King, is the personal fulfillment of all of that longing hope. And if his birth is unique, so also is his victory. Here is a king who was born to die, to win salvation for his people, and then who rises again in stunning triumph over death. And of course, in his resurrection, Jesus powerfully proves that he is the God-man king who towers over all other kings. The promised king from the ages, for all ages, whose kingdom transcends geography and whose kingdom will outlast human history itself. Sandwiched between this introduction and conclusion then, there are five blocks in Matthew. And each block has the same pattern. There's some narrative and some teaching in each block, and there are five of them. In the first block, Matthew seeks to lay out the credentials of the king, chapters 3 to 7. In the second block, Matthew goes on to reveal something of the great compassion of the king. And the end of chapter 10 is where we got to when we preached through Matthew before so up to this point, we've seen Jesus, the promised king. We've seen Matthew lay out his credentials. We've seen Matthew describe his wonderful compassion. But in the third section, it is as if the mood changes. What Matthew records next is that opposition and conflict and tension begin to escalate. There's actually a hint of it. Uh, towards the end of the previous section in chapter 10, Jesus sends his disciples out to preach to the surrounding villages and towns. And he warns them from verse 17 of chapter 10 that they'll face opposition as they do that. And then this same opposition appears in an even uglier form in chapter 12 and verse 14. We're told that the religious leaders went out and began to plot how they might kill him. So as we get back into this part of Matthew today, we start to see that Jesus, the king, was rejected. And unlike Matthew, who instantly and gladly followed Jesus with both feet and all of his heart, we discover that there are also many who hate him and who actually want him death. As we engage with this part of Matthew, I want us to think about this though, as we see something of this opposition that rises, what is Matthew trying to teach us about Jesus the King? We, we can deal with these later sections and we'll deal with these later sections at some other time. But you'll see there that I've highlighted this third section in Matthew as the perseverance of the king. What we have here in these chapters is a masterclass in how Jesus responds to escalating opposition. As the pressure mounts, he isn't rattled, he isn't frustrated, 
Jesus the King isn't on the brink of giving up or caving in. And actually what we'll see, Jesus does two things very clearly. In the narrative part of this third block, Jesus refreshes and protects his weary friends. And then in the teaching part of this block from chapter 13, as we'll see, Jesus teaches them that this is how it will always be for the followers of Jesus in this world. Jesus the King will steadily grow his kingdom in spite of such difficulties and opposition. And he urges them to be patient and to trust him as they follow him as he builds his kingdom in this world. So Matthew in this section is showing us that Jesus the King is in control rather than at the mercy of random events. He is full of joy and clarity rather than paralysed with fear. And in circumstances that I'm sure would cause any of us to fade and fall away, Jesus calmly and masterfully perseveres and comes through this rising conflict. I hope that you can see how relevant this is to our current circumstances. We are weary and restless and a little bit shaken in our time. We're fed up of pandemics and politics, aren't we? But Jesus the King, our great King, isn't depressed. The world that he inhabited is as it was as confused then as ours is now. But Jesus the King is as in control now as he was then. His kingdom is not successful or flashy in the eyes of the world. Sometimes it may look as if things are too difficult or too fragile or that progress seems so hard. But Jesus is not phased. He loves his friends. And the glory of his kingdom is that he is patiently and triumphantly building it right in the middle of and through every generation of human brokenness. Let's turn then finally to see something of the immediate context of this part of Matthew that we're breaking back into today. And my last point is very simple. In the middle of all this rising conflict, Jesus the King models healthy ministry. Jesus the King models healthy ministry. What I'd like to do in this last point is to summarise this background context here under three simple headings. And the first is this, Jesus loves needy communities. As we go back into the end of the previous section, listen to how Matthew describes the scene. In his day, in chapter 9, you can, you can see this in verse 35 and 36. Matthew tells us this, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, 
proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What a description Matthew gives of the society that Jesus inhabited. People wandering about like shepherdless sheep. The poignant thing in this description is that people do not seem to know that they're lost. And Jesus' heart went out to the individual people that made up these masses. He loved them, pitied them, and longed for their good. What does Jesus make of our communities, our society, our prevailing culture? What would his attitude be as he contemplates and surveys the great mass of people who live here in Rotherham? Our homes, our workplaces, your street where you live. What does Jesus make of the stresses and strains that we all feel? Our hopes, dreams, disappointments, frustrations. Matthew says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew teaches us that Jesus is moved with compassion. He loves needy communities. Secondly, Jesus reassures nervous characters. Now we, we finally made it to chapter 11, <laughs> where, we, where we're going to start our, our series. And next, Matthew, if you've got your Bible open there in chapter 11, Matthew records a very odd little episode about John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been thrown into prison by the regional governor, Herod, for preaching. John the Baptist was like a kind of human blowtorch. He was known as a fearless and fearsome preacher and people flocked in great numbers from the cities out into the desert to hear John preach. So we know that John the Baptist is a courageous man who believes and knows God. He, he's not ignorant or weak or some kind of coward. Now though, from prison... The great John the Baptist sends a message to Jesus to ask if he really is the Messiah. In verse 2, when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Does it... Does it not strike you as incredible that the Bible records for us the doubts of the most famous and fearless preacher in the whole of human history. Perhaps John the Baptist was struggling to understand the rising opposition himself. 
Was Jesus not meant to put an end to all of this? Is, was he not promised as the king who would make things better? And in his isolation, in prison, John wonders whether he's got everything wrong. What John shows us, though, is that there is a world of difference between a stubborn refusal to believe and having honest questions, isn't there? Two different things. And the great thing about John is that he goes straight to Jesus to ask his question. John isn't shaking his fist and refusing to believe in Jesus. He's plagued with doubt. This isn't cynicism. It's anxiety and nervousness. But rather than trying to figure out this stuff on his own, John's instinct is to go straight to Jesus. And I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't condemn him or crush him. Jesus doesn't use this question as an opportunity to publicly undermine John. In fact, what Jesus actually gives to the crowd is the most ringing endorsement of fragile John that you could imagine. In verse 9, Jesus says that John is greater than all of the prophets. And then in verse 11, he says that John the Baptist was the greatest human being ever to have been born. Friends, see how Jesus loves his weak friends. He understood him. He sympathised with him and he encouraged him. And Jesus sends back a message in verse 4 that is calculated to reassure John so that he can reaffirm his faith. Listen to what Jesus says. Go back and tell John, the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And good news is being preached to the poor. Does Jesus sound depressed to you? This is a hard world. But Jesus the King is undaunted and unbreakable. And because of that he is also very, very tender and sensitive to the genuine but fragile faith of his friends. What a king. And thirdly, and lastly, Jesus warns neglectful cultures. The last thing I want you to notice as we draw to a close in chapter 11 are the words that Jesus then goes on to speak to the crowds. Jesus speaks, as we've seen, a little bit about John the Baptist. And then in verse 16, Jesus begins to speak very bluntly to the listening crowds. And he basically says to them, John the Baptist was a bit wild and a bit fierce and you didn't like him. And then the Messiah comes healing and smiling and you ridicule him as a greedy drunkard. What do you actually want? 
Make up your minds. I can remember going on holidays with our kids and everyone trying to decide what music to put on for a long journey. And in verse 17, Jesus here is like, you don't like sad music, you don't like happy music, you didn't like John, you don't like me. Your excuses are pathetic. Make up your mind. And then this, and don't, don't forget this, then this sensitive, tender, kind Jesus say some of the harshest words that you'll find in, the, in, in anywhere in the Bible. He ends by telling them that if the people in Sodom had seen what they have now seen with their own eyes, they themselves would have repented centuries ago. But that they themselves are doomed because of their refusal to see what is right in front of their faces. Jesus is saying to them, you have no excuse. This is not ignorance. This is willful, stubborn refusal to believe. Jesus, the king, expects them to respond to what they've seen of him with their own eyes. Jesus, the king, is not invading their world as a sort of optional extra. He isn't a hobby or a night class that we can take or leave or compare to something else. Here is the very goodness of God in human flesh coming to the needy and the nervous and people go, meh, whatever. The shocking thing is that these people here are religious people, not criminals. These people are moral, upright, law-abiding, respectable people. Perhaps these are the kind of people who read the Daily Mail and think, I'm so glad I'm not like that. Or the kind of people who read history and think, Sodom and Gomorrah, wasn't that awful? And Jesus says, you're worse than them. Pardon? What a sharp perspective Jesus brings here. If Jesus is the king, then of course our apathy towards him is a kind of treason. Their greatest crime was not their outward morality, but their refusal to re embrace him. Jesus doesn't condemn people in his day for being murderers or for being immoral. Their crime, their greatest crime, was their unbelief. And this is God's great clarifying question, isn't it, for all of us? Everywhere, what will you do with Jesus? So, against all opposition, what a model of healthy ministry Jesus the King gives us in these chapters in Matthew. 
Jesus the King sacrificially loves the needy. He gently reassures the nervous. And he also plainly warns the unbelieving. Well, what can we take away? Let me remind you that we've seen three things about Jesus today. Jesus is the great king who compels and inspires decisive obedience. Jesus is the king who, because he's in control, overcomes rising opposition. And Jesus is the king who models healthy ministry. In these weary confusing hard times I want you to be encouraged by the kingliness of Jesus be like Matthew don't hesitate but be decisive in nailing your colours to his royal mast don't let fear or pride or something you feel is more important than he could possibly be, keep you from being passionately devoted to him. And for us as a church, as a little community of Jesus followers here in Rotherham, may we be increasingly like him. Loving the needy, reassuring the nervous, and warning the neglectful. In 2021, let's hope 2021 is better than 2020 was, but in 2021, let's not lose sight of the king that we belong to and the hope that we have in him. And may that help us to trust him and to love one another, and to reach out to our community with his good news. Let's bow for a moment, shall we? Jesus, the King. Father, we thank you for your gracious gift, your eternal, beautiful son. Father, we thank you that your response to the brokenness in our world and in our own hearts is to give us Jesus, the King. Would you help us? Would you open our eyes to see him, to love him, to be satisfied in him and to give our lives to his cause with the same kind of passionate devotion that Matthew did here. We pray in his royal name. Amen.